I'm Alexander Wales. And today we have a special guest. Erratic Errata. And this is episode 44, world building anew, something like that. What do you want to call, hmm. like what part of world building do you think in particular? I can, I can always just call it world building part two, but if there's anything else that you yeah, want to talk about, cool. yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that would fit because it's kind of hard to put a label. Yeah, yeah. Especially if we haven't had the conversation about. yet, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we can always think of one later. World building part two for now. All right, so for anyone that doesn't know, first of all, how dare you? And second of all, this is the writer of A Practical Guide to Evil, which is an original online web serial, and we are having him on today mostly to talk about world building, but maybe other stuff too. And there's a few topics in particular that he mentioned that he would be interested in talking about, and one of them that he mentioned that I thought was really interesting was the concept of one culture per nation kind of thing. One identity per nation? Is that the way you'd call it? Would you describe it? Yeah. Uh, on TV Tropes, I think it's referred to as uh, Planet of Hats. The, the idea that a nation, a planet, or a civilization has basically one single personality with a few variations in, except for that one party member, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And this idea of, like, all the orcs are one way, all the humans of this nation are another way, all the elves are another way. And real, meanwhile, in the real world, obviously, like, every country has factions within it, has different personality types within it, has different... Like, every generation had, will have a different flavor within its own country, even. Even within fairly small nations, you, you're going to see a lot of variety that, mm-hmm. uh, uh, as a modern fantasy in particular, uh, seems to have a lack of that to an extent. Right. Or, yeah. Uh, I would argue that a lot of that goes back to Tolkien, which kind of set the slate for, for everybody. Mm-hmm. You have the dwarves that are greedy and basically like gold alcohol and sticking it to the elves. You have the elves that are kind of ethereal, mm-hmm. disdain everything, very distant. Then you have your orcs and goblins that are basically evil meat fodder. Mm-hmm. Humans kind of short-sighted, numerous, but capable of heroism, like well, most of Tolkien's characters were human. But yeah, uh, I think a lot of the problems with that that have erupted in modern fantasy are from the fact that Tolkien has a lot of uh, uh, mythical world-building behind that uh, isn't developed in works that use that slate, as in, it, it's a shorthand, I can understand that as a writer, that is extremely useful if you just uh, introduce the dwarves as the dwarves that are kind of... All one way. Yeah, you don't need to explain a lot. Mm-hmm. A reader can come out cold and perfectly understand that. But it, it does tend to be, um, I wouldn't want to call it lazy, but there's a bit of that, yeah, in, in the sense that you don't need to build a real civilization with uh, real priorities. You don't need it to be actually functioning. You need that cliche storm that everybody can recognize and then just never really address it. Right. Yeah, and I think to some extent it's a, a, a writing issue because... If you want to show off different aspects of civilization, you usually need more than one character to do that, right? Like, if there are two different facets of a culture, it's really hard to do that in one character. And if you have, like, five main characters in your cast, it's it's hard to fully explore their tensions with their culture and sort of the different sides of it. It's like, if you want to... If you had a party that was made up of, like, people from different Earth nations, it'd be hard to get at their, like political differences within their nations just by having the five of them talk right and it'd be really hard also if the main characters that the protagonists are of a particular philosophical persuasion from their country to not set up a good and bad duality from within their perspective right so it's like we can have the the dwarf in the party maybe 
uh, different from other dwarves around the world or in his culture or something. Maybe that's why he's an adventurer opposed to being back home. Uh, but then you could the, like the the very easy thing to fall into then is to have like him be somewhat of an enlightened dwarf opposed to his culture. Or and then if there's a like kind of a neutral like third party of dwarf that has a different philosophy, even it would just be very hard to fit into the story relevantly. Yeah. And I guess in a sense, especially if you have a limited cast, like five people, which I guess is the traditional number of heroes you want in a party, having your character represent those cliches or basically that one personality, uh, it saves you the time world building wise to introduce every nuance of that nation. Because mm-hmm. just by having that one character representing those values, representing that way of thinking, you don't really need to go into detail from there. Right. Is this something that's harder, do you guys think, to do with non-human races? Because of this idea of if there's a elven civilization in a world, usually what they'll be is like they're the elves. Sometimes they'll do the high elf, wood elf, dark elf kind of thing, right? If there's dwarves, usually they're the dwarves. Sometimes they'll do the underground dwarves versus um, hill dwarves versus mountain dwarves or something like that. But humans are usually always like, there's humans on islands, there's humans on deserts, there's humans in forests or in plains. There's, you know, there's humans that are like everywhere. They're always like the melting pot kind of generic, like most common race in, in the world. Is that play into it sometimes? Like I notice also in, in like um, Factual Guide, for example, has lots of variation within even like the nation of Kalo between um, the different subcultures or sub-ethnicities. Same with the Prezi, like there's the different kinds of Prezi that will sometimes like you'll see the different and and the way they look and the way they think and all that stuff but again like there is still that kind of sense that like the orcs are all kind of all orcs there's no like real and maybe part of that's because they were they were like forced into one culture by conquest or something but i'm wondering if it's Yeah. yeah race thing too yeah well the orcs in particular i had to work a lot on because one of the starting parts of the guide were uh was where i took staple fantasy cliches and i tried to deconstruct them Mm -hmm. and also reconstruct them in the sense that uh, I went it I went at it from the perspective all right this is the fantasy trope in in a world how could that function and why would it function that way right and for example the orcs uh, as you mentioned uh, basically their culture their culture was stripped away repeatedly over centuries leaving them with a basic warrior society and some values they don't really understand because they don't have the the cultural baggage the, to put them in context anymore right but as you mentioned to build on the basically when you have the dwarves it's the dwarves the elves maybe you separate them by race Mm -hmm. i think it's curious that i guess part of it is that maybe usually humans are the most numerous Mm -hmm. species in any fantasy setting but you're it's fairly rare that you're gonna see a lot of elven nations separated by culture and perspective as you would see human nations same for the dwarves or the orcs or basically any non-human civilization right yeah i think it's it's sort of like if you have a different race they already have their thing that's different and so i don't know it can be it's not it's not laziness i don't think it's a little bit laziness but but to, to some extent it's like you've already done the work of showing what sets them apart as different and then to to cleave that again to say okay these are the elves and they're different from humans in this way in terms of their outlook and stuff to to cleave that again and say okay they're like elves a and elves b here are the major differences between the two of them i think a lot of a lot of the time you're just like well the elves elves are already different 
You know, do we, do we need to have so many different types of elves? Mm-hmm. Um, which, I mean, I, I prefer, you know, I prefer my other races. Sorry, they're called species in Worth the Candle. <laughs> but <laughs> that have, having a different species and then having them have all this sort of, like, fractal differences in them. Like, the dwarves in Worth the Candle are, are pointed out several times as being, like, we, we know the one dwarf. And he's like, okay, well, like, you're, you're not actually going to speak Dwarven. You're going to speak this specific dialect of the lingua franca of the dwarves. Mm-hmm. You know, he he's not a typical dwarf. He's just the dwarf you know. And so, like, when we come across a different dwarf, that different dwarf acts totally differently because he comes from, like, a different culture within the dwarves. But that's kind of a hard thing to get across, yeah. I think, because if you if you just have the one dwarf that the nerd focus stays with you kind of don't get as much of that you just you're basically telling instead of showing right yeah. you would really need two dwarves to mm-hmm. to make that work i guess uh, on the meta level whether you state in the text or not that that's the case if you have a main character with specific species as one of the main cast they're going to be considered the ambassador for that species yes and this is kind of also something that has to do with the focus of a nation as a character like in stories that treat nations as characters like you want this whatever whatever potential arc that the culture in that nation might have or the struggles or the conflicts that within that nation that it might have it has to kind of be central to the story for that to happen and then it's in that case it's kind of difficult to do that with multiple nations usually we'll be focused on maybe one nation maybe two nations maybe three nations but i can't really think of any stories that go into like really deep dives into like four or five six seven different nations like internal struggles practical guide gives a good a good run at it with you've got callow you've got the proker foster proker how do you pronounce that i pronounce it proker but french is my mother tongue so okay yeah <laughs> makes sense proker um and crazy and the free cities right and so you, there's a lot of them um but yeah again then there's the the um elves and the dwarves and the goblins and the orcs which we've we've which are not major focuses of the story, and so and so come off as more monolithic than they might otherwise be. Although I guess the goblins are also run by bloodthirsty, iron-handed matriarchy, which might solidify somewhat their culture. Yeah, it's also very uh, isolationist in the mm-hmm. sense that it suppresses the information coming out, so mm-hmm. there's not a lot of characters that have a from which we have the point of view and therefore the information that have a good idea of what's actually going on in basically where all the goblins live on that continent. Right. But, uh, yeah, uh, earlier you were speaking about uh, how elves are already different from humans, so you don't want to subdivide so much, and I think that's an interesting thought in the sense that, uh, I mean, we are humans Mm -hmm. as writers, so whether or not we recognize that the baseline in what we write is always human and as soon as it diverges from that it's already a difference mm-hmm. uh, i think that uh, disinvites complication in a way yeah it's hard to it's hard to tamp down on that bias of of um, humans as the baseline in terms of like ways to get around that i feel like an important an important thing to do is just try to think of like these like kind of axiomatic principles that I think are very generic in a way to many societies. I think, you know, if we meet aliens someday and um, have any reason to interface with their culture, they'll probably have, assuming they're in any way like 
like similar to us, uh, they'll probably have some in some form some part of the population that's focused on progress and moving forward and like changing social norms, and some part of the culture that's more okay with like keeping social norms and defending traditions and all that kind of thing. Maybe I'm wrong. Like maybe that's just still too human centric a way of focusing on like what a completely alien culture might look like. Um, but if they're at least similar enough to us as dwarves, elves, all that kind of stuff generally are portrayed as being to us, um, it's still, I think, interesting to think of it in, in, in the senses of like, okay, like what do progressive elves think about opposed to what do conservative elves think about? Um, what do religious, what do religious dwarves think about versus what do like less religious, like secular dwarves think about, right? Like what do, um, militaristic, um, uh, uh, what do militaristic orcs think about versus what do isolationist orcs think about like you know using just on those general axes it helps split cultures up a little bit like start start off with that idea of like how a monolithic culture might still have subcultures within it i think i think my instinct is to find the most interesting thing about like an alien culture and then see what the dividing lines are on on that because mm-hmm. like there are a lot of things that you can do especially in in fantasy but speculative fiction in general that oh man they're, okay so there's this race that like they collect rocks and they don't have teeth so they collect rocks to as like substitute teeth that they just like stick in their mouth to mash things up right so like one of the big dividing lines in their culture might be do you collect your own rocks or do you buy them mm. right I, that's the kind of stuff that I love for, if, if you're going to divide up like an alien or more, more on the alien end of culture, you can, cause you can divide them up on lines that don't exist yeah. to divide up human society. Yeah. Although, you know, they, they obviously would mirror in some ways and you can draw parallels, which I like. Mm-hmm. Is that like, why, why is it taboo to buy rocks right. instead of finding them on your own? Yeah. Is this like a traditionalism thing or, I don't know. That that's the kind of like you you find what you find these different dividing lines that exist and are alien in how important they might be to someone else. Because yeah. it's just like that's not a thing that exists. There was um a deepness in the sky by Werner Vinge. He had these like spider creatures who go into hibernation, and then uh, children are always born like right after the spiders come out of hibernation and there's like a big taboo in their society about spiders who are born like later in the season. That's like not a done thing, Mm -hmm. which I thought was really neat as like sort of a, that's, that's a really important thing in their culture that you can sort of see reflections of human biases and how we treat taboo things like that. But it's, it's very different because it's about something that's not, that doesn't have a human analog, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I guess, in that sense, conflict is quite useful for that. Like you mentioned, uh, buying rocks versus getting your own rocks is uh, conflict. Like it kind of highlights the values, mm-hmm. and even if those are very alien values, uh, I guess it allows you to empathize with the character uh, a bit, even if those values are completely alien. You can understand uh, from a reader's perspective the, the preoccupation with it. Yeah, seeking seeking taboos, um, seeking values, and how those how how conflict will arise naturally from that kind of sense of, and I, I would say like inherently universal quote unquote values is also interesting because there's this idea of like in a culture that for example 
completely thinks that we're like superfoods in terms of like our our like sexuality and mating and all that kind of stuff like what do they find taboo if anything like what social things would they find taboo there was a thing in um a wise man's fear by patrick rothfuss where there was this culture that found singing and music to be like incredibly incredibly personal and like you know it's like super embarrassing to be to be like letting just anyone hear you sing in public it's just something that you would only do like in private with someone that you really cared about or like your family or something so like things like that can just add like bits of um uniqueness to a story to a, to a culture in a way that like all you need is like one part of a culture that thinks that way and another part of a culture that doesn't think that way and then you've got two very different groups within the same race or within the same country or whatever it is yeah and i think with the with the like alternate races thing, th- there's a temptation to have to have that just be a trait of the culture, mm-hmm. right? Like the elves just think that singing is very personal, and then that becomes like an elf thing mm-hmm. rather than a conflict within elf society. It's, right. it's right. like an elf-human right. conflict, which is kind of. I think you lose something if you stick with just that. Yeah, I think from a writer's perspective, however fun exploring all this is, uh, there's a hard limit on how alien you can actually make all of this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, while writing the guide, I had to, I realized very early on after I introduced the Fae that it was pretty much impossible for me to ever write from the perspective of one because that would be so alien a thought process that it wouldn't be readable. Mm-hmm. And uh, I imagine there's quite a few. Um, uh, perspectives, uh, especially as soon as you bring gods or basically any kind of higher being into a, a novel, that it would be useful if the reader could see that. It's not necessarily doable as a writer. Yeah, this is what I was going to say also about the main character themselves is almost always human. Um, in all these cases, like sometimes there's multiple main characters and you'll shift between them, especially for interludes and things like that. But like, human is the baseline protagonist in, in all these stories. And like you said, if the protagonist or one of the protagonists is too alien from the reader's experience it's just going to be very difficult to, for them to get engaged and really like sink into the story yeah, it's a lot harder to write too yeah it's like like really i i've tried at various times i'm like oh i'm just going to do something like really weird as an interlude or something and then i'm like well i can't it it, it just takes like five times as long mm-hmm to try to go through and be like, okay, they, they think about, they divide the world into like these five different parts. And so I have to be thinking about which part I'm in. I don't know. It's just, it's very difficult to, to, to juggle, to execute well, to like actually do, but I put maybe too much emphasis on trying to write fast. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's a, a part of it. Sometimes I'll just be like, well, I'm trying to do this from the inside view of what it's actually like. It's just going to take such an enormous amount of time. Whereas doing it from, the outside, I can see what it looks like a lot better, because I am human. Yeah. <laughs> that helps. Yeah. Now, I've found it useful when uh, trying to do non-human point of views to have uh, a short list of um, basic values that are divergent from humans and try to call back on them and use that when you're actually trying to write from that perspective. Yeah. So you both write and have written stories that are very big on deconstructing and then reconstructing fantasy tropes. I would say it's kind of somewhat of a staple in rational fiction in general. Like deconstructing and reconstructing is obviously very common for, for rational fiction. Um, but in terms of taking fantasy, uh, or I guess just taking um, tropes that are very common in, in fantasy, like A Practical Guide to Evil, or let's say superhero fiction, quote unquote, in Shadows of the Limelight. 
what would you guys say like is I was gonna say what would what would you say is like the hardest thing that you found to reconstruct or deconstruct in 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 those kinds of genres when you're trying to rationalize them? Hmm. Are there any kind of challenges that like have been or particularly big challenges that that have come from writing the guide in, in that sense or trying to reconstruct? Well, the, the original impetus for the guide was well, not the original, but what got me writing it seriously was I sat down with a friend and we had a conversation about how does Mordor work? Mm-hmm. Uh, as in, it's in Lord of the Rings, it's a it's basically a wasteland. There's nothing that can actually live there. Mm-hmm. And we know orcs eat. So is there an orc who handles agriculture? Right. Do they just eat each other all the time? And uh, that's that's where most of the work went during the first book. I had to figure out how Pais would actually work as a nation, especially if it's a nest of backstabbers that slap skulls on everything and frequently summons devils and demons. How would that function as a nation? Mm-hmm. And deconstructing how that's actually bad for a nation was the easy part. The reconstruction, which was much e- uh, much harder, was why does this nation still exist? Why hasn't collapsed on itself? And it was actually the most Im- interesting part to do because Callow, there wasn't a lot of uh, need for deconstruction or reconstruction there. It's your basic fantasy kingdom. I sprinkled a bit of what a, being a border nation like that would actually feel like from the perspective of the inhabitants. But Pais, on the other hand, uh, the culture inside of it was very difficult to build, although I'm happy with how it turned out. Quick note, now I know it's pronounced Pais, uh, you said? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I've, yeah. I've been saying crazy in my head this whole time, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, don't worry about it. Like I said, uh, I do I do have an accent in English. So. <laughs> um, yeah, so I definitely agree that deconstruction is a lot easier than than reconstruction like it's it's easy to find the faults in things or not even the faults but like the the sort of knock-on effects that come from establishing some rule or you know people having some aesthetic or or something like that and it's sort of hard to build that back up into something that resembles the original mm-hmm. i guess or, and especially that resembles the original and is pleasing to people in sort of the same way as the original was. Which isn't always, I guess, a goal of reconstruction. Sometimes it's just you do the deconstruction to disassemble the thing, and then you do the reconstruction and you put it back together and it's, it's different than it was. Which I guess is my preferred way of doing it, but a lot of people, if they really like the original, right. they don't want it to be like... I think you get that a lot when people add in moral complexity to a fantasy trope, I guess, or tropes which are more beloved rather than just sort of a thing that happens in the genre. Mm-hmm. Like if you, for example, <laughs> set up specifically a what looks like a harem story and then like like kind of just like sink all the ships as quickly as possible and like set yeah. one ship like into the horizon as fast as possible. Yeah, some people will, will not like that. Mm-hmm. Or I, I don't know, it's, it's the reconstruction that's for, definitely for me is the hardest part especially if I didn't like the original trope to begin with. Sometimes I just don't want to do the deconstruction and then yeah. leave it deconstructed, leave these little piles of pieces laying around and not be like, well, did my work, and then <laughs> sail off in the sunset. So Yeah, but uh, I, I, harems in particular, now that you brought them up, uh, I have literally never a single time seen that 
done well because it, there's a historical precedent for that. Mm -hmm. it, it's happened in real life, but what they actually were and what we see in fiction are such completely different things because uh, it's always a bunch of love stories that uh, happen to overlap with that single male protagonist. Uh, although I guess uh, in anime, sometimes you see it flipped around. And romance novels. <laughs> yeah, but when historically speaking, it was yeah. mostly politics and from the perspective of someone living in like a Ottoman harem, for for example, that was not a pleasant place to live. Right. That involved a lot of murder and intrigue. Yeah, which is so, like so much yeah. more interesting. The the like murder and intrigue than the romance. To me, anyway, than than you know a bunch of overlapping love stories, which have their pros and cons, I guess. But yeah, the the murder and intrigue of like different members of a harem. It's, I mean, like, I, it's, it's great stuff. <laughs> I do have to say, what got me into the closest thing to harem stories that I've really enjoyed, which were the um, Meredith Gentry series and the Needle Blake series by Laurel K. Hamilton, was that I was browsing through the bookstore at the age of, I'm going to say about 15, maybe 16 ish. And it's like, oh, this is a book about a badass vampire slaying necromancer who also happens to eventually get into a bunch of harem shenanigans with vampires and werewolves and, and all these different things. This is precursor to um twilight like a thing that a lot of modern modern supernaturals based off of was the anita blake series and so like you know the harem aspect was actually really interestingly handled because it was like the first time i'd seen the concept of a character who is more or less monogamous yeah actually heavy duty monogamous to start with kind of from one book to the next becoming more and more into the idea of a, like having a harem and being polygamous and all that kind of thing and like deconstructing all the like romance tropes around that concept until like it made them all kind of start building them back up and reworking them. But yeah, it is something that I don't see done very often well, but I think is actually kind of interesting when you think about like, what are the tropes of romance? How do you deconstruct them? How do you reconstruct them? You, you both also write stories that are very into the playing with the tropes of narrative, right? Like play, like narrative as a force in the world. And a thing that characters are aware of and then try to subvert to their own ends. And that's that's a thing that, like, seeing it done, I think, is really enjoyable. For me, anyway, I, I, I obviously really enjoy that kind of thing. I think a lot of people do. But, like, applying that kind of concept to something like romance would be interesting. Like, seeing people be like, well, in you know, there, there's this narrative force that, that revolves around um, romance and love in this universe. And, like, we're going to try to, like, navigate things. I think the closest thing I've seen to that was something like the rational fiction for Twilight, Luminosity. Yeah. No, I think I think that invoking narrative within narrative is a lot of fun. I don't think I'm going to do it again after <laughs> the candle is finished because it's just... Yeah, I, <laughs> right. I, I would tend to agree with that. The, the amount of time you have to pour into figuring out if the meta doesn't break itself and mm. if everything still fits is... I, I sometimes have to spend as much time figuring out if a chapter doesn't break the universe as I've introduced it as I do writing the damn chapter. Oh yeah, I bet the rule of three comes back to bite you a lot. Oh, you would not... Yeah, I, I mean, if you watch the comments any uh, on the, the, the site, you uh -huh. see how often the rule of three is brought up. And I mean, I don't regret it. Right, right, right. But I, I think when I re-edit the whole thing, I'm going to have to be a lot clearer about in what particular situations it can actually be relevant. Yeah, I haven't I haven't really read much of the comment sections for uh, Practical Guide to Evil, but I introduced uh, one or two friends to it, and whenever we talk about it, like, the rule of three pops up every time any hero or villain interact with each other, and it's like, is this setting up a rule of three? And I'm like, I don't 
think so, guys. Like, this is, it's not meant to be that loosely applied, but, you know. Yeah. No, it's, um, the working uh, narrative inside a narrative like that, I think one of the difficulties is us as readers or authors uh, have a pretty broad knowledge of stories mm-hmm. and we've consumed a lot of media and especially in this day and age when we have so much more access to information than ever before mm-hmm. but the characters in that setting who are trying to exploit those tropes those stories don't necessarily have access to that kind of information even if they've been studying stories specifically for a long time so there's a difficulty in partitioning how much information, how much awareness particular characters should have. Yeah. And I, I do think that there's a risk of getting a little navel-gazing at <laughs> yeah. times. I've, I've sometimes found myself, I'm just like, okay, this is just like, you're, you're writing a story about writing stories. And so like narrative, about narrative, and it's a little, I sometimes yearn for a story that just doesn't have that complication in it, mm-hmm. where it's just just one level instead of two. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I'm, I'm also, I'm bad at staying monogamous with stories as part of it. So I think there's also a need to recognize that it doesn't necessarily detract from the work, but something like the guide in particular, it's a hard fantasy to approach if you've not read fantasy before, because it does yes. heavily on having knowledge of general fantasy. So, a Practical Guide and uh, Worth the Candle, and Chows and Limelight for that matter, all three of those stories that you guys have written are not fanfic, but they are still stories that kind of rely, like you said, on this, like, you it, the, you get a lot extra out of them um, where, if you are very familiar with certain sets of things. So if you are not really into tabletop RPGs and DMing and, like, all that kind of stuff, then Worth the Candle is probably not going to be as enjoyable or as, like, immersive. Uh, you don't get yeah. like the narrative sense. You don't like understand the narrative flow that the characters are talking about as well. Like all that stuff. If you don't really read a lot of fantasy and you don't like recognize the tropes and like wonder to yourself, like like you said, like how does the Orca nation work? Well, how does the evil nation with no like agricultural base work? Then like the the cleverness, the, you you miss it. Right? Like it's like like okay, it's just a whatever. Like this is just another country like any other. But whereas other people who used to, it's like oh, I see what they did there, which is very similar to writing fan fiction in terms of like if the person hasn't read the canon work they might miss some of the extra work and cleverness that goes into the reconstruction specifically right the how do i take this thing that's very common and then make it work uh as a as i guess one level up like as a as a rational story or as a as a like an engaging reason for it to exist in that way and i'm sure that's probably a big part of the motivation to do it in the first place of wanting to enjoy this medium in story form this this like these like discussions that we all kind of have with our friends and each other and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny because I think a lot of times what happens is that people will get introduced to a genre through something that's a deconstruction of that genre. Mm. Like that happens with anime a lot is that people will just recommend stuff that, <laughs> that are just like deconstructions of or like thoughtful meditations on. The, the yeah. genre of anime or subgenres like if, if i'm if i'm recommending like anime to people so like I, at least half of the anime recommendations i make to people these days are in some way deconstructions and reconstructions yeah yeah so i think i think it, you have to execute well and you have to have at least some understanding that that there's going to be a fraction of people who come in not being familiar with the source, mm-hmm. I guess. And for them, if you're like, oh, well, these are like elves taken to the logical extreme, 
And they're like, well, I don't know what an elf is, you know? So it has to work on, on multiple different levels. It has to work just as itself mm -hmm. and then as a bit of commentary, I guess. But yeah, and anime Food Wars is great, but <laughs> it's like a standard shonen battle anime, except they're doing food and mm -hmm. they're like very aware that it's not, that these people are not like fighting, but they take all the tropes from it and that's a source of a lot of humor. For it, but I I sometimes think about what that show must be like <laughs> to someone who's not used to shonen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, who who like doesn't understand because I watch it sometimes. My wife is uh, like in the room with me, and she's just like, "What is going on here?" Yeah, I think obviously we're we're writing in a specific manner just by putting it on the putting it up on the internet. Mm -hmm. But uh, I wouldn't say that necessarily just because there's a lot of narrative within the narrative that makes it unusual. There's a, I guess, broad back backwards knowledge requirement mm. in the sense you read Dante's Inferno and if you're unfamiliar with, say, Greek mythology, there's a lot of names popping up in there that right. you're not going to get that reference. Yeah. So, so it's not necessarily unusual to have that, but I would say that's ahead of the curve how much narrative within a narrative depends on people having that foreknowledge. Yeah, how much media has to be consumed for work to reach its full, like, enjoyable potential, definitely. We're writing on a higher end on that curve, which might just add extra work in terms of, like Alexander said, like making it work on multiple levels for people. If I recommend Hunter x Hunter to someone and they miss all the clever ways it inverts or deconstructs like shonen anime, or if I recommend Madoka Magica to someone and they miss like all the clever ways it reconstructs the magical girl genre, at least hopefully they'll still enjoy it on, on the basic like okay this is a clever and well done and good story too but uh, when you're writing it like and you've got to actually do the work of making it understandable and enjoyable to readers that you don't know where they're coming from especially because like you said it's on the internet like it's a very open kind of uh, actually i guess it's not well marketing marketing of books aside like it's it's still a very open forum in terms of who's going to find your story on on a like a forum or something like that or on a it's easier to get but that doesn't necessarily mean people know it's there yeah yeah free free lowers the barriers to entry mm -hmm. a lot i i definitely do get people who are like you know i've never played like a tabletop rpg not really into fantasy and i'm reading your story i'm <laughs> like well okay i wonder what that experience is like for you because that's not it's sort of it's sort of written with the thinking that someone will have my level of experience mm -hmm. that's sort of and i i find it easier to write that way and i'm sort of I'm trying to write a story that's most enjoyable for me rather than than shifting the aim too much towards a general audience. And I think you 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 end up with jokes that go over people's heads and like different elements that are referenced on some level but are still supposed to work, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's a it's a difficult thing. Writing the same work for multiple different audiences is one of the harder things to do as an author. Yeah. So another thing that uh, you mentioned was that you were interested in talking about kind of the writer's perspective in factors when you're world building with things like actual gods existing or magic existing, right? Yeah, uh, I, I'll try to be careful not to overlap with the episodes you've done on like that, actual religion. That's totally fine. I'd be happy to hear your perspective too. Yeah, it's um, when you're designing a nation, as I, I don't know the process uh, for you guys, mm -hmm. but I tried to address the workings at least the basic ones of most uh, the nation actors in the setting before i got 
too serious, uh, too deep in the writing anyways. I think a lot of uh, things we take for granted no longer necessarily work in a world where you might have something like magic or gods right. or other species. Because, for example, would racism, as we have in the real world, really develop in the same manner when you have an actual completely different species mm -hmm. out there or gender relations, for uh, for example? There's a physical balance of strengths between men and women, which especially back in, in times before technology served as an equalizer, kind of set a, a dynamic. Mm -hmm. But if one in 10 people, regardless of gender, gets magic, then trying to push that luck might get you blown right. the face. Uh, in that sense, from the perspective of that, that mugger or that rapist in the streets at night, you are rolling the dice every time you do that in a manner that wouldn't really apply in our world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think about that one a lot because I tend to like I tend to like writing stories that have more gender equality, just because it's <laughs> like I find it unpleasant to write about societies where there's levels of misogyny that are close to what was historically accurate. That you then have that you then have to adjust through the story, or just you mean even just having to write about them. Like you, like well, you just the, like having the, to address I mean, them, or you just like having to write about them in the first place? I think that if you just write about them and then you don't address it at all, mm -hmm. it's just like, oh, like, it's like horrible to be a woman in the fantasy 1700s, right? right? And and then if you don't address that in, in your story at all, it's kind of, I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't want to write a story that was about like a really racist guy, mm -hmm. and then his racism is never like examined right. or addressed. He's just like... There's this main plot that he goes through, and also he's like a racist, and and we're not going to comment on that at all. I mean, that used to, that used to just be yeah. par for the course in literature, right? Like, yeah, no, it definitely yeah. did. But uh, with misogyny in particular in writing, or just uh, women systematically, especially in fantasy mm -hmm. series, because that's still something that happens quite a bit. Uh, women never having a position of power. I think that's also not necessarily a reflection of the time period the writer says they're basing that dynamic on mm -hmm. because uh, take women in medieval europe they did run they did run most of europe while men were at war in uh, in the crusades mm -hmm. or were just at war in other countries there was yeah. actually quite a bit of influence it wasn't necessarily open or what chronicles of the time focused on but it mm -hmm. did exist so when you go into a setting where you take only the very very outer dynamic you're you're kind of shortchanging the depth of the story there could be yeah that's a good point actually a lot of so a lot of the resources that we use when we write stories whether they're fiction based or historical fiction based or speculative fiction based for example it's very hard for most people i would say to think off the top of their heads of 10 famous uh, female inventors mm. anywhere near as quickly as they can think of 10 famous male inventors and that's not necessarily because there weren't any it's just kind of something that our culture in particular our world in particular has is still kind of catching up on recognizing like retroactively and same with other cultures and that kind of thing like someone raised in modern united states would be very i think ill-equipped most most people would be very ill-equipped to define like striving inventions that were made in, for example, 1200 AD Asia or yeah. things like that. And so like, that's the kind of thing that like, it's hard not to do the cultural centric perspective on what a fantasy version of that would look like in a, in another world. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's worth, yeah, it's worth examining how the equalizing forces that you might have in the story can easily can kind of bridge that gap. Yeah. 
Yeah, because you have to kind of justify how uh, you could transplant those mores from a specific point of time into a setting where the rules are different. Mm -hmm. Because how those mores came to be doesn't necessarily apply. Just the, the way a society would be changed by the fact that one in ten person can blow up somebody else's head just by snapping their fingers, mm -hmm. that deeply influences, at least in my opinion, how a society would grow, how even something as basic as uh, government will, would grow from that. It doesn't even have to be military, it's just uh, the social conventions would be so very different. <laughs> yeah, assassination of, of political leaders would be just a whole different ballgame. Yeah, I, I have a cultural checklist and like a natural, a, a national checklist, and magic's not not on either of those. And when I whenever I am thinking about magic or just rules that don't exist in our world, I always try to go through those and see like, okay, how do, what impacts does this have on like gender roles, on um, on trade, on beliefs, on how law is made and enforced, and how you obtain and transfer power and so much shifts when you change the rules right like okay. even if you just add on like 50 years to the average lifespan um you get you get just wildly different cultures should develop out of that right, right? Uh, like because I mean, they still follow the same i guess human rules for how humans behave but then you suddenly like great grandparents are are extremely common and you have great, great grandparents and that changes how families organize themselves. That changes like how old your rulers will tend to be mm -hmm. and things like that. It's, it's just, it's a lot to look at even with very simple magic or, or like not very complex magic. But once you start adding other rules in it, just, it, it gets very difficult. And I often think that I'm not doing enough justice to like the differences, I guess, because there's there's so many things that you need to think about. You need to think about like crops and domesticated animals and like the spread of disease and technology. And there's 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 a whole bunch of stuff mm -hmm. that goes into making a nation before you even start to get into nations interacting with each other. I tend to think there's only so much you can do as an author because you do always have to keep in mind does the reader want us you to spend three chapters explaining <laughs> agricultural politics in the neighboring kingdom? Most likely not. I mean, there, there's fun bits to introduce, and mm. I think it might help writing to have that information, that uh, that outline for yourself. But there's always a balancing act when you're putting out a chapter in uh, this is world building I've done. It might even be interesting. Does it detract from what I'm trying to accomplish with this chapter. Yeah. Yeah. Alex and I actually recently, uh, in an episode that hasn't been put online yet, mentioned that, like, the readers will also obviously have questions. So sometimes they'll ask a question um, that, like, you you as the writer know the answer. Like, you've written about it. Or, you know, you've, you've conceptualized what this would look like. But there just hasn't been a good place to put it in the story yet. Um, and so there's just some information that will, like, probably never go into the story that people will be curious about. Well, that's the point of suspension of disbelief, mm -hmm. I guess. If if your world building has been solid enough so far, people will assume there's a good reason for that bit of information that's missing. Right. So is there anything else that you guys want to talk about on that point? 
I guess maybe the, the perspective of uh, that has been coming up in the guide of late. Uh, mm-hmm. Free will in the sense that when you have an actual yeah. deity. Yeah, that's a big one. Also, <laughs> if the deity isn't omnipotent mm-hmm. and uh, omniscient, is it actually just a, a big spirit, a large powerful force instead of an actual god? Right. Does it answer prayers? What do, what do prayers even mean in a world where they can potentially be answered, right? Like, is there, like, this is something that always interests me in tabletop games that I play, because most fantasy tabletops will have, like, gods explicitly as things. Uh, and if you're not, like, a priest or paladin or some kind of, like, religiously oriented um, character, like, you can have a religion and follow a god or something, but, like, unless you've got some mechanic for, behind it, any kind of, like, prayer that you make or kind of, like, boon that you try to ask for from your from your god or goddess or whatever uh will generally speaking be ignored just because like mechanically you have nothing to justify getting that like power uh or that that ability or that like intervention or whatever it is uh the way that a priest would just like you know some of their spells simply are fueled by the gods or whatever and yeah like what is what is a character's relationship with divinity work look like in a world that you create with gods that exist and then Keep things like divine intervention from interfering with like political questions, right? Like if there's ever a dispute about who's supposed to be ruling a country and the gods just don't interfere in any way, yeah, or like can't interfere or like fight about it, then you've got like a whole separate problem now, theological and, and moral and all that stuff. I mean, just the concept of divine right of king is mm-hmm. pretty different when you've got an actual god at the end of the line that can say no that doesn't actually apply but also uh, for example uh, the bible which has been revised as a text quite a bit o- over the years mm-hmm. but if you have an actual holy text from an actual deity in that setting no nobody nobody's going to be messing with that they, they're probably going to get struck down if they do so it's it's a very different kind of religion that you end up dealing with yes because for for one, you know for sure this is the actual god or goddess's word. They should usually be pretty clear about their intentions, and blasphemy becomes an actual very real risk you have to live with. <laughs> so uh, I would argue that at that point, uh, the religion as shown in the setting doesn't really isn't a religion as we personally know it. Yeah, because it can't really you can't really call it faith when your neighbor got smote last week because he didn't pay his tithe time yeah i it's very gods are a very difficult thing especially as they get more powerful like if they're just if they're just like superheroes i guess yeah. if they're at that level it's less concerning you still do have the the question of like why why is superman not saving everyone's life you know like if this was so important where was captain america you have that question but for the gods which is can be difficult to answer you kind of can end up with these powerful gods who are powerless to change anything, which is one of the traditional ways of handling it. I don't know. It's 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 a very difficult thing to do and to do well. There 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 are multiple different solutions to the question of the gods, but they're they're a very difficult thing to introduce into a story and still maintain like suspension of disbelief. And also not have them like overshadow everything, but it kind of depends on like if you're how much you're going to include them in the story, or the, whether they're just going to be background figures that like don't matter to your plot. Yeah, I think the safe approach mostly of just saying like if you've got any kind of presence of the gods in your story, they've 
kind of have to, by necessity, be either like the Greek and Roman gods, right, where they're like very, very specifically focused in their in their interests and also very flawed in their character. So that yeah. so that you can have basically like, why didn't that god intervene? Uh, maybe you weren't pious enough for their liking, or weren't you know enough of a drunk to get the attention yeah. of like Dionysus, for example. Dionysus was the wine one, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, or like whatever, whatever it is that catches their attention and makes them interested in you. Like you, there's a there's a bar you've got to cross, and then also alternatively, like maybe they were just really busy that day, or like they were like distracted by like one of their rivals, or like they were in a bet with one of their rivals, or something like that. Because kind of like you said, like if there's a sense of um, omnipotence and relevance to the story, then after a certain point, free will very quickly becomes a point of contention in terms of just like why does any of this matter if if it's not just ultimately like a, a single point of failure test that like, like God cares about. And there's a whole question of the afterlife and how that might delegitimize any actual deaths that happen and like make them not important and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, there's, there's also, you have to kind of justify why would anyone be act villainously yeah. in a setting where it's a certainty you're going to hell for that. Mm -hmm. And hell's a bad place opposed to just a place that like, all the people of a certain philosophy just get congregated, right? Like clearly, both both sides could just portray the other one as like, like the good people can say the bad place, like the, the that hell is just like full of fire and brimstone, whereas the bad people can just say like, no, that's where all the cool people end up. Heaven is just really boring. Like there's you know there's no fire and brimstone down there, and then it's just he said she said without the gods actually like showing you a glimpse. It's yeah, it does bring up the the, the question: Why would anybody any god have to? openly have the traditional portfolio of murder and betrayal mm -hmm. like why would they put that out in the open <laughs> when they could just put on a light show instead and say oh i'm about creativity and maybe yeah. friendship i had a question kind of random so the i've asked you in, in a private message that whether you were a fan of uh, total war yeah and i've been playing total warhammer total war warhammer is it fine just call, i'm just gonna call it total warhammer and i've been playing total warhammer recently and just noticing a lot of like very strong like senses of like fantasy fulfillment that I uh, that like the craving the craving of which I get from reading Fatical Guide like is satisfied somewhat by the game and narratives that I, I form in my head when playing strategy games sometimes like take on a different light now when I'm playing um, for example Total Warhammer um, like there's a country there's a there's a team called uh, Britannia Britannia yeah and I, and as I, and as I was playing it I was like I'm playing Fokker, right? <laughs> like, I, like this is what it feels like, and I'm like, does he? Did he play this? Does he play this game? Uh, I, I'm, I'm not pretty familiar with Warhammer. It was one of the first RPG books I picked up. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think where you're getting the the similarity from is uh, Central Fokker is based on France, uh -huh. the the elements, and Britannia is also based on France. Right. There's that there's that similar sense of uh, very rich uh, party. Uh, reception uh, with the the nightly veneer, right, right. You have dirt poor peasants getting stomped on. Yeah, and there was also just this very strong sense of like, as uh, in in the first one, anyway, I haven't played Total Warhammer two, um, but with like, it's very it may very much seemed like one of my major objectives as Britannia was to like unite all the different little provinces first, uh, and like have a united Britannia, and then I can move on to like worrying about in like outside forces, which you know very much mirrored the idea of what's going on in Fokker in the story, and I was just wondering like to any extent do you ever like get ideas for your story from playing games like this where you where you form new narratives in your head between countries because it feels like it would be a really useful 
generator for people who are thinking of writing their own kinds of like fantasy stories or like medieval setting stories to play games like this and then just kind of if you're good at like thinking up narratives in your head as you as you justify what's happening in the game getting histories for your for your nations that way basically the strategy games i play most of the time that are medieval ish are crusader king uh-huh. and i mean there's a narrative to be found there but i'm not good enough of a player to have anything <laughs> that epic going on <laughs> so no there, there hasn't uh, been much of that on uh, on my part uh, most of the inspiration i get for storylines is uh historical gotcha mostly well the prince of it itself was uh, kind of fairly openly based on the holy roman empire with what i brutally simplify the dynamics that were actually going on in there. There's no Pope for one, which kind of uncomplicates things. Mm -hmm. But I guess it's uh, inevitable to an extent that uh, I drew a lot of inspiration from whatever fantasy I was reading at the time. And I did do Warhammer, so I wouldn't be surprised if a few details slipped in there without me consciously reaching for them. Gotcha. Yeah, I... I do a lot of Crusader Kings, and I have like 400 hours in Europa Universalis 4, the big one I play. But I, I often do, I'm like, yeah, well, I'm just going to like steal a bunch of details from these historical countries. Or from these historical countries that have developed because of how I've played them. Right. Like, there there will be things that happen in the games that like spark something in my imagination. Or that like have this sort of developing story that is its own thing, distinct from historical fact. I guess. Yeah. Which I, when I take inspiration from games, it's usually that sort of stuff. It's like this own developed story from these rules that exist within the games that sort of a story emerges for you to see rather than, rather than being a historical story or being the story of the game. It's always the stuff that sort of the game throws up from its interactions of rules that spark my imagination the most yeah yeah uh, your choices then kind of like start new stories that wouldn't normally be like that someone else might have a completely different experience of yeah i, I do enjoy that in crusader kings you are actually playing the dynasty but practically speaking you have that one ruler at a time with uh-huh. their titles the things they do and out of that i can see how it would be pretty easy to make a story out of mm-hmm. because uh i mean the way to play the game is to be really brutal and opportunistic and do these horrible things and then you screw yourself and you have to kind of pull yourself back to the from the brink mm-hmm. and that that could make actually for very interesting storytelling if it was uh well applied i mean i've dabbled in fanfic over the years and one of the things i wanted to do was in a game of thrones setting uh, the idea of a character that came back every every few generations inside a particular house, Mm. which would be uh, a bit, I guess, Crusader Kings-y in the sense that uh, it would be a different challenge in every generation. Would every, the same character as in, like, with all the same memories that everyone recognizes as the same person? Yeah, uh, essentially it would, there would be, like, mystical claptrap to Mm. indicate that it would be the same character. Okay. And uh, I guess eventually if it happens long enough and people recognize it for long enough, there might be religious undertones to it. Mm-hmm. So writing the, the history of a, di- a dynasty like this mm-hmm. could be interesting, but there's a certain attraction to having uh, following a particular character's story from beginning to end. Right. So, yeah, in a, in a sense, I, I, I wanted to that as a sloppy mechanism to kind of bridge the whole thing. But, uh, no, uh, yeah. I got lost again. Sorry about that. That's okay. I think you, I think you completed a point. All right. So I'm going to wrap up the episode by just asking some questions that have been on my mind while reading the story. 
A thing that I have noticed so far in the story that I really like, and I don't know if I've seen anyone discuss it yet, but it seems like prophecies just don't exist in this story. Uh, well, it's uh, it's tricky because the problem with uh, prophecies in the guideverse is that uh, both sides, uh, what you could call good and evil, kind of want to enforce their own take on that which is why when there are prophecies they're usually fairly vague as mm-hmm. you know the greeks famously were so it's always ambiguous wording uh, when it's not ambiguous wording there's always a risk that yeah you should probably shouldn't count on that too much because you might get screwed yeah so we've had a few names that are capable of seeing either the future in some way or just seeing things that people are planning to do or things that people are plotting to do in, in a way that, that acts basically like being able to see the future in some in some regard. But I don't think we've seen yet like actual from on high proclamations of what's for sure going to happen in a way that like makes it feel, to me anyway, that doesn't trip my senses of artificial character actions being inspired by them. Uh, like even, even with the, the glimpses of the future that characters get and then communicate to each other, uh, it all still feels like organic. And I I wrote like a rant on on prophecies. I don't know if you've seen it, but like, no, haven't actually. Yeah, my major my major pet peeve with prophecies prophecies in general are a major pet peeve of mine. But but my major problem with with prophecies tends to be that I feel like they always just kind of undermine organic character decisions. And like yeah. you could have found a better way to make characters do the things that they end up doing in the story without the prophecy if you just didn't include the prophecy. But I haven't felt that way at all in your story, and I really appreciate that about it. Like it's, I think it's one of the only fantasy stories I've read, actually, that has just no sense of prophecy in it at all. And everything that kind of seems like a prophecy is really just a power that like characters have that has flaws and can be planned around. And yeah, it's just much better. Yeah, well, first, thanks. That's always nice to hear. But uh, yeah... Um... Uh, the thing about that is uh, the guideverse in particular, uh, how I described it when arguing with a friend a while back, is creation is basically a collegial debate between the gods. Mm-hmm. So if a side makes a prophecy, there's, I mean, sure, it can try to enforce it to an extent as much as it can intervene, but there is an opposition. Yeah. So you, you can't really... And I mean, from a more of a writing perspective, I tend to dislike uh, plot devices that remove character agency, mm-hmm. which is, you know, mildly ironic considering uh, free will has been something of a, of a theme in the books. But uh, uh, prophecy, yeah, like you said, it, it kind of uh, it removes a character's ability to make decisions for themselves according to what makes sense to them, which uh, I wouldn't necessarily call it poor writing, but it's not something I'd enjoy writing. Yeah. And... Obviously, there's no there's no sense of uh, a um, chosen one. Like there's a there's there are narratives that get set up, which kind of maybe sort of act like in in similar ways, but because they don't have the the actual one one source of truth from on high exclamation of like how things are going to be. It like you said, there's that there's that interplay between above and below. The above can I guess at some point maybe they have like just said like this is the chosen one who's going to end. Like the reign of the evil emperor, or empress, or whatever it is, but like it can't actually have that much weight. Otherwise, the, like below would just call foul. Yeah, uh, the, that's the uh, thing I tried to make it clear. See, uh, what you've described, there's been literally half a hundred of them between Pais and Callo, 
uh, a prince or a knight or someone who ended up with a heroic name yeah. and killed an emperor or killed a black knight. And the, 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 there's a, a bit of it uh, that is it never really changes the dynamic, even if you deal with a problem. With what I try to get across is you can systematically decapitate leadership on either side. It never really changes anything about the underlying problems. And there are... I tried to make it clear in the books, demographics, mm -hmm. uh, resource reasons for the way the empire developed. And sure, it doesn't really excuse how their mindset got to, but they, it, it didn't form in a, in a vacuum. Right. And until that is addressed, eventually, sooner or later, no matter how good uh, or bad relationships are between leaderships and on both sides, it will resume to that. Yeah. So another question I had was something like, I guess the prophecy one wasn't really a question. I was going to ask if it was on purpose, but you, you pretty much addressed it. Um, another question I had was something like, there's, there's this idea of like physical objects as, you know, like magical objects or like legendary artifacts or things like that. Uh, like villains aren't really allowed to have them, sort of, it seems like. Mm. Like they seem much more like a, a heroic thing. And... I don't know how much of this is because, like, of a like just a rule, like kind of like villains don't tend to have healing healing powers, so villains also don't tend to have you know items of power or artifacts of power. That tends to be a heroic thing, or is it something along the lines of like something intrinsic to the way villains interact with the world versus something about the way heroes interact with the world? Uh, I what I or specify considering uh, what you just said is uh, that um, villain wise what we what we focused on in the books is uh, Catherine of course mm -hmm. uh, her direct collaborators uh, black the calamity is generally speaking a bit militia and uh, the person who made uh, the character who made the, the core uh, fighting philosophy for that group in a very real sense is black mm -hmm. and he has a has seen quite a lot over the years through records or even seeing some of it himself that artifacts tend to, you know, fail at that critical moment. Right. And he, it could have been possible uh, to, to use them and not to rely on them, but he's someone who abhors those kinds of risks. So he removed it entirely from the, the let's, let's call it the, the, the fighting method of that group. But it's not something I would consider necessarily applies to the villainy on the continent as a whole. The Tyrant of Helike, for an example, is loaded with artifacts, uses them all the time. Mm -hmm. Kind of an uh, as an extension of his philosophy is there's so many failure points, fate doesn't really know to pick which one. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, Catherine at this point has yeah, uh, her fairly... Yeah, mantle of woe, which, uh, yeah, she... she has, she's not unaware uh, at this point that it, it could backfire on mm. her, but she kind of really needs it in the situation where she is, which, I mean, is, is kind of how villains get bit in the ass by those kind of concepts. Right, right. Because I, I really need it is you start to rely on it, and then at some point a hero with that precise counter comes in and you're screwed. Yeah, so does this work in reverse for the heroes? So, I mean, we saw one with the Lone Swordsman. I was just in general, like, are artifacts that heroes use also prone to this, like, failure mode? I think they carry different uh, kind of risks, broadly mm. speaking. Uh, Lone Swordsman is actually a good example. Uh, what his sword, the Peloton's Blade, was uh, Mendel's Feather, mm -hmm. and it's directly responsible for his death. Uh, it didn't fail so much as from the beginning, it was a very dangerous gift, which might get killed eventually. You, you could 
consider it kind of a failure state, but with different conditions. Right. Overall, uh, on Calernia, um, or even the Guideverse as a whole, I say, uh, the more powerful an artifact is, the more it is very, very dangerous to its user. Yeah. Is there a sense of scale in like how, like the more powerful the name, the more powerful the artifact they're they're like capable of using, or is there something like could, or is there something in in the in the idea of artifacts that like you can kind of like hand a artifact to just about anyone and it would still be like effective for them? Like like are there like in essence like named items that that are themselves just like sources of power that anyone could use or do they always link are they always linked to specific like heroes or villains i'd separate it in two categories there are artifacts that people literally have made uh archers uh, arrows are a good example for that Mm -hmm. uh there are well lesser artifacts but still artifacts and there's no particular legend behind them or anything they were just made out of very expensive materials by someone who was skilled at sorcery mm-hmm. on the other hand Catherine's mantle for example is a good example of the other category uh wasn't a very inherently magical it was uh, it had a, a few a little bit of sorcery on it when she got it from black but nothing major but it's become part enough of her story of her legend in mm-hmm. a sense that the more prominent she becomes and the more prominently in features in her story the more power is going to keep gathering right and uh, the fact that she kind of so had the aqua sewn onto it it will only make it worse because you're you are literally sewing a, a named shade onto it which mm-hmm. kind of uh, a decision of import particularly in Catherine's story yeah so, so names can can only give, be given to one person at a time. But if if the named person doesn't quote unquote fully die, does the name get stuck in limbo? Like like Aqua for one example, but also you know the uh, revenants that the dead king has. Uh, the revenants are dead, uh, as in the the name passed on. Okay. They have basically they they wouldn't be considered proper named. There's basically an echo of what they used to be. As for a name being in limbo. I'd, I'd say it varies that uh, someone, uh, a hero who got iced for 200 years might come out with a different names, mm. although he will probably come out. But if you lobotomize someone, they will most likely lose their name because in a very real sense, they don't exist anymore. Got it. So it's it's tied to the sense of identity that, that they as a person are. Someone who came in, who went into stasis with one name will come out of stasis probably with a different name because they are very effectively like a different person in a different story now. Yeah, the, the, that's a good way to put it. Uh, the, the context is uh, quite important right. for that. Uh, the, the thing with names and generals is there's very few hard rules because everything is so situational. Yeah. This is something that was probably answered at some point, and I just haven't seen it because I don't, I don't read uh, very often the comments, but like Empress and Tyrant, or Emperor and Tyrant. So Tyrant is a, is a title that current tyrant of uh, helike helike how do you pronounce helike. it helike the, count, yeah. the tyrant of helike has has the tyrant title right now and there's been an emperor or empress in this in the tower i guess like through all of the the history of the of prize but why do they sometimes get referred to as tyrants mm, via via the empire uh, tyrant is basically a courtesy t- title for uh, the the red emperor or the red empress uh, while tyrant of helike is an actual name oh yeah, it's. Uh, it, I realized a little too late in writing it that it was. It, it was. Uh, it would lead to some confusion, which is one of the reasons. Whenever I say, uh, whenever I refer to Tyrant, the character, I try to make it clear it's the Tyrant of Helike, and I've kind of phased out the use a little bit. Although, uh, as far as um, 
gender neutral uh, address when I want to cover uh, both genders in that sense. Uh, Tyrant tends to be the, the one that that fits best. Okay, yeah. He is his name is actually Tyrant, but like they add of Helike because it distinguishes him. Yeah, essentially. Got it. Can someone gain a name without realizing it? Hmm. I mean, uh, Anaxares essentially had that happening to him uh, yeah, throughout yeah. book three, although that was planned. So, uh, but yeah, I, I would say uh, awareness of the power you're gathering isn't uh, always necessary. Mm-hmm. Someone who ends up in a story and acts in a way that a named would might get a name without ever banking on it or realizing it. Probably they would have a hard time. Um, calling on an aspect without realizing it, because that tends to be a very <laughs> active component. Yeah, once you start speaking in bold text, it's kind of hard not to know. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Okay, so, uh, like, there are no universal traits that named acquire, right? Like, someone's not going to suddenly... Well, I mean, if they're a martial character, then maybe they might, but, like, someone's not going to suddenly, like, pick up a, car- a cup and, like, squeeze it too hard and shatter it and be like, oh, I'm, I might be named now, like, because it's not... Unless, unless it's a martial a martial name that they're getting that's increasing their strength, like like it's not like a, a someone who gets a name of like I don't know do, I guess sorceress names don't get like physical strength as part of the package, right? That depends. Uh, most names get uh, physically speaking uh, human uh, better than human average or human peak if they're more martial. Then learning to use their name actively, they can go beyond that. Okay, but. Like I mentioned earlier, a lot of uh, a name's power is situational. Mm-hmm. So it, it might not necessarily be uh, walking to a room and uh, pouring tea and you just shattered a cup. It might be more that you end up lasting in a fight a lot longer than you would. And there's no real explanation for it. Or uh, let's say you a uh, burst of skill in the middle uh, of a combat for a named. Uh, but yeah, you in a, in a sense, you're right that uh, anything physical would tend to go more towards uh, martial or fighting name than general. Yeah. Because uh, Scribe, for example, gets uh, nearly nothing physical out of her name. Yeah, Scribe was one of the ones I was thinking of in terms of, of whether they would get like physical, like whether they would necessarily notice that they were the name before, I guess, before like a, an aspect showed up. Uh, like maybe they yeah, noticed well, their like mental... Specific to Scribe's history, yes, she noticed, right. but... I mean, people aren't unaware of names, mm-hmm. so if something weird starts happening without an explanation, you might wonder if there's sorcery involved, or if that's not really a possible answer, you might start wondering, well, maybe I have a name. Right, like, what stops someone from just kind of saying, like, what stops someone from just kind of claiming a name, I guess, if they're so, like, if someone is becomes, like, really strong and fast and, like, martially powerful... Couldn't they just claim to be a name that other people don't currently have, and like people, and like keep people guessing instead of revealing what their actual name is? Yeah, I mean, imposters are impossible. Of course, uh, you're you're meddling with something that's directly related to the gods, so there's an element that uh, how far do I really want to push this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but there's also, uh, in a sense, the irony that uh, someone who has uh, the the guts to claim they have uh, divine or a mandate from above or below, and then get into those kind of situations can very likely end up getting an actual name out of it. Right. Because if you're going into those kind of scraps as a vanilla mortal, to put it that way, then obviously there's there's something up there that <laughs> marks you apart from the rest. Right. Um, what about someone who gets a name, but they just don't want to reveal what the name is uh, for, the, for the strategic advantage that gives them? 
because there's not like it's not like you know like there's a UI that comes up when when the white knight when the white knight shows up. I guess there's certain mm-hmm. powers that like you you will people will know are familiar to the white knight. Uh, like once they start using certain things, but like maybe that's a bad example because he wouldn't want to be like treacherous or whatever. But like yeah, so like let's say there's no assassin and thief gains like someone becomes thief and they or actually reverse that makes more sense. So there's no thief around currently and someone gets the assassin name. And they're like, oh, I'm not an assassin. No, I'm just a thief, right? Like, there's no one, no one would be able to really know that they were lying. Uh, yeah, that's actually wouldn't be um, that out of character for right. a character with the name of assassin to do. Because, I mean, there's not a lot of people who openly want to claim that unless yeah. local culture allows it, which on most of the continent it wouldn't really. But, uh, yeah, there's also people who outright don't mention being named. It's um, typically that kind of power is difficult to hide and unless your name specifically lends itself to it. Mm-hmm. But because just because uh, someone hasn't come crawling out of the woodworks claiming a divine mandate doesn't mean they don't exist necessarily. For example, there are names among the elves, which will probably never never be uh, yeah. revealed unless someone interacts di- directly with them. Or in other parts, for example, we've seen quite a few heroes in the Crusades. That doesn't necessarily mean that's every single hero on the continent. Yeah. I mean, there's this idea that I think presented in the story a few times that like people with names are inherently people who are set apart in some way from others and like they have a will that wants to change a thing in the world. This might be more a villain thing than a hero thing. But the the name comes with, in some way, this facet of individual will, I guess? Willpower is uh, one way to put it. Otherwise, it's a very strong drive yeah. uh, to something in specific. For example, uh, Archer isn't someone who is all that interested in changing the world, mm-hmm. but she does have an exceedingly powerful individual drive, which is um, in part towards freedom, but also uh, discovering new things, experiencing new things. Right, which is probably why there isn't the name like for like farmer or something. Again, just in terms of, of like what what exactly the willpower would be like aimed towards. I don't know. Maybe there is. Well, there's also um, just because something's a staple part of a story doesn't mean it's uh, necessarily part of the name. Uh, the important part of the story of the the farmer who becomes a hero isn't the years he spent as a farmer. Mm-hmm. It's what happens afterwards. Yeah. So so the idea of someone hiding while having a name, like not wanting to interact with the world while having a name, like it would have to be part of a story that makes it make sense for them to be hiding or, or just or be separate from, from the world. Yeah, or whatever they're after doesn't really require interacting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a different environment, uh, someone like your warlock or hierophant might end up disappearing for 30, 40 years just digging into their research, but situation doesn't really allow for that. Got it. Okay, I think my last question... Otherwise, it's just going to go on too long. <laughs> My last question is something like, I, I know the Wizard of the West wasn't actually said to be killed. It said that his power was broken. Uh, is this spoilery if I ask about this? Is, well, I guess you answering is going to be spoilery either way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a way to put it. Uh, I mean, I, I haven't actually uh, decided whether it was going to be mentioned in the, in the story, but it's not a major plot point or anything. Uh, Wizard of the West was uh, killed in the aftermath of that battle at the Fields ah. of Streges, but it was, uh, in a way, uh, that entire episode was a mirror of what you could consider one of the formative events in Black's life, when uh, he, as a soldier, went into that a battle at the very same place where he later had his most famous victory, and the Dread Emperor at the time, Dread Emperor Nefarious, uh, essentially got his... Uh, face smashed in by the Wizard of the West, mm-hmm. his own power got broke, 
which kind of set the empire into a horrible downward spiral and directly led to uh, militia eventually being taken to the tower. Uh, okay, so it set up a narrative wait for a counter a counteraction. Yeah, it, in a sense, it was settling a score that was incurred uh, decades earlier when there was that very, very shameful defeat for the empire, even by imperial standards, that in a sense was avenged by... Uh, decades of planning and new methods, you could call it pragmatic evil in a sense, which was kind of the proof of concept for that philosophy at the time. Cool. The question I was going to have about the Wizards of the West was just the idea of like, West meaning Colonia? West meaning... Because like West, West, West as a concept for a name feels like it has to be related to geography, but I don't know for sure. Like if there's a wizard in the north or a wizard in the east, or if they have different meanings. In in Calernia specifically, because as a continent it doesn't interact enormously with uh, the rest of the world, the west and the east uh, tends to be defined by, in a sense, for example, um, First Prince of Kokar, one of her titles is a Warden of West, mm-hmm. the West. And the west is essentially uh, good-aligned nations that are kind of towards the west of the continent, but it's uh, really more of a, a principle than a geographic description. Right. Uh, specific to Price and Calo, Wizard of the West, Wizard of the West was a very um, a reoccurring name within within Calo in direct opposition to the Warlock on the other side of the border. Got it. Cool. Well, thanks for your time. It was my pleasure. I hope to continue reading the amazing story soon. I was going to say tomorrow, but whenever this day, because now it's Thursday, but whenever this day that this podcast comes out, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, all right. Fair enough. All right. Have a good night. Thanks, and thanks for having me on. Thanks. Okay. Thanks a lot. Um, thanks for listening, guys. Uh, feel free to tune in next time. I'll come up with something to say at the end of this. Uh... <laughs>